Hello, and welcome to episode 17 of the Forensic Files. I'm Dr. N. Today, we'll be covering a rare and controversial disorder colloquially known as Munchausen syndrome by proxy. The technical terminology is factitious disorder imposed on another. The syndrome or disorder itself, or imposed on the self, occurs when a patient fakes or induces their own symptoms and seeks treatment for ailments they do not have. The patient believes they are sick and psychologically manifests symptoms to corroborate their beliefs. These patients will endure complicated, painful, and debilitating treatments to gain sympathy and attention. When the disorder is imposed on another, these manifestations of illness are channeled into another person rather than the self. An individual, usually a caretaker or someone close to the victim, will create the illusion of health problems in the victim. Those victims are usually their children. The first description of this occurring was made in 1977 when a pediatrician realized the mother of two children he treated was making false claims about the health of her children, using those children as proxies for herself to gain attention as patients. The DSM-3 incorporated Munchausen-type symptoms in 1980 under the Factitious Disorder section. Both factitious physical and psychological symptoms were recognized. Some of the warning signs of Munchausen syndrome by proxy were considered to be inconsistencies in medical history and clinical findings, symptoms that mysteriously go away when the mother is not present, unusual symptoms, lack of response to treatment, and comparisons of child's medical problems to parents' medical problems. Before we get into the cases, I want to let listeners know there will be discussion of child abuse, child death, and murder. I also want to note that while it is possible for mothers and fathers to have Munchausen syndrome by proxy, it much more often occurs with mothers. There is a lot of controversy that surrounds this diagnosis, and there's very little, flimsy at best, empirical basis for factitious disorder by proxy. It is incredibly rare, so research on the subject is pretty difficult. It occurs in roughly two in a hundred thousand children. The research that does exist is based on observation rather than systematic methods. Problem can occur when children genuinely suffer from mystery illnesses that are difficult to diagnose. In those cases, unjust accusations can be made of the parents and children can be separated from their mothers when they only want to find out what is wrong with them. Most of you true crime buffs have undoubtedly heard of the Gypsy Rose Blanchard case. It's been covered on numerous podcasts and is the story behind both HBO's Mommy Dead and Dearest and Hulu's The Act. Gypsy Rose was born in 1991. Throughout her life, Gypsy's mother, Dee Dee, claimed she had numerous health conditions and issues. Starting when Gypsy was just a baby, Dee Dee claimed Gypsy had sleep apnea. At eight years old, Dee Dee claimed Gypsy suffered from leukemia and muscular dystrophy requiring the use of a wheelchair and feeding tube. Dee Dee further described Gypsy's symptoms including seizures, asthma, and hearing and visual impairments. 
Because of these claims, Gypsy was on a number of medications and used a breathing machine to sleep. She had numerous surgeries from procedures on her eyes to removing her salivary glands. Her teeth were even removed after they had rotted out. Dee Dee needed to be a caretaker and created illnesses for her daughter to be treated for. Gypsy never had cancer, but Dee Dee shaved her head to create the appearance that she was being treated for cancer. They received a lot of attention because of Gypsy's supposed conditions, something which only caused Dee Dee to continue fabricating Gypsy's illnesses. Most of the actual medical tests done on Gypsy were inconclusive or even contradictory to the diagnoses Dee Dee claimed Gypsy had been given. She bounced around to different doctors until she found ones who could treat Gypsy for the illnesses she didn't have. Dee Dee would give Gypsy medication that would mimic symptoms and sometimes the medication prescribed for certain symptoms had side effects of the condition that they were supposed to treat. Gypsy never talked or related her experience of symptoms as Dee Dee was always in control instructing her daughter not to talk to anyone. Dee Dee used Hurricane Katrina as a convenient excuse for missing medical files and moved from Louisiana to Missouri in 2005 to get away from skeptical family members who questioned Gypsy's illnesses. By 2008, Gypsy was 17, but Dee Dee would lie about Gypsy's age, even altering her birth certificate to make Gypsy appear younger. As Dee Dee began losing more control over her daughter as she aged, she would have to use more forceful and abusive measures to keep her in line, according to Gypsy. Habitat for Humanity built Dee Dee and Gypsy a new home in Missouri, and they also received a lot of charity-sponsored gifts, like a trip to Disney World. Even when a doctor became suspicious and an anonymous report was made that Gypsy's illnesses may not have any medical basis, Dee Dee was able to persuade Child Services that it was all a big misunderstanding. Gypsy tried to escape once in 2011 when she was 19, but her mother found her, took her back home, and destroyed her computer and phone. In 2015, at the age of 24, Gypsy joined a Christian dating site and met Nicholas Godijan, whom she asked to kill Dee Dee so the couple could be together. Godijan stabbed Dee Dee to death in her home, and he and Gypsy fled, but were later apprehended. Gypsy Rose was convicted of second-degree murder and accepted a plea bargain to serve 10 years in prison. She will be eligible for parole in 2024. Godijan was convicted of first-degree murder and armed criminal action, and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole, plus 25 years. Being a victim of this kind of treatment and, frankly, child abuse is abhorrent, but does it justify murder? Do you think Gypsy's mother would have eventually killed her? Many people do. Do you think it was preemptive self-defense? I'm not sure any of us will completely understand why Gypsy Rose planned her mother's murder, but we also cannot understand what she endured. The torture and lies for years. She was never given a chance to be her own person, to be a child, to grow into her full potential. How would we all have turned out under those circumstances? I want to talk about some lesser known potential cases of Munchausen syndrome by proxy. 
Mary Beth Tinning is believed to have murdered her children between the years of 1967 and 1985, very shortly after their births. She had a total of nine children, only one of whom is believed to have died of natural causes. None of them would live past the age of four. There was a pattern of her bringing her newborns to the emergency room where they were treated for seizures and heart problems. The first of her children to die was Jennifer, the third born. She died at eight days old in December of 1971 from hemorrhagic meningitis and multiple brain abscesses from birth. This is thought to be a natural death since it happened before she left the hospital and it could have even sparked the compulsion to kill her other children. Just 17 days later, in January of 1972, Tinning took her second-born child, Joseph, to the emergency room, where they attributed his death to cardiopulmonary arrest. Just weeks later, Tinning then took her first-born, Barbara, to the hospital after going into convulsions. Barbara died after going into a coma, and doctors believed she had Ray syndrome which is an aggressive brain disease often beginning after recovering from a viral infection, where 90% of cases in children are associated with aspirin use. In November of 1973, a year and a half later, she had her fourth child, Timothy. He died the same day he was born. Tinning claimed she found him unresponsive in his crib, and doctors believed it was a result of SIDS, or Sudden Infant Death Syndrome. Tinning had a fifth child in 1975 who died at about six months of age in the car. A year later, Tinning adopted her sixth child, Michael. Two months later, she gave birth to her seventh child, Mary Frances. In January of 1979, Tinning claimed Mary Frances had a seizure and took her to the hospital. At the time, the hospital was able to revive her but a month later, Mary Frances had full cardiac arrest and sustained irreversible brain damage. She was taken off life support after two days. Tinning's eighth child was born in the fall of 1979, Jonathan. He died the following spring in 1980 after being on life support for four weeks. Now at this point, Doctors could somewhat rationalize the deaths, some as SIDS or possibly some rare genetic condition. However, in 1981, those beliefs started to falter. Tinning's adopted son, Michael, fell down the stairs and wouldn't wake up, according to Tinning. She took him to the hospital where he died. Finally, in 1985, Tinning had her ninth and final child, Tammy Lynn. She was smothered to death. Tinning confessed to killing her daughter, Tammy Lynn, along with two other children, though she was only charged with Tammy Lynn's murder. It's difficult to believe that a mother would purposely kill her own children, and even after five of them had died, doctors didn't suspect foul play. They attributed the deaths to SIDS. Tinning was convicted of the death of her youngest child, Tammy Lynn, she was acquitted of deliberately causing the child's death, but was convicted of depraved indifference to human life, a second-degree murder charge that came with a 20-year-to-life sentence. At a 2011 parole board hearing, she admitted she was in a fragile state of mind after the deaths of her other children, and she snapped. 
Her parole hearings went back and forth between acknowledgement of her crime to claiming she had no memory of the event. She was granted parole and was released in August of 2018. It's unclear whether Tinning was ever formally diagnosed with Munchausen syndrome by proxy, but the events surrounding her children's deaths certainly lend support to that belief. An interesting detail to add, Tinning had poisoned her husband in 1974 with an epilepsy drug that she took from a friend. He nearly died, but never pressed charges. Another case that could be related to Munchausen syndrome by proxy is that of Kathy Bush. Kathy had three children, two boys and a girl. Jennifer was the youngest of the three children, born in 1985. Kathy constantly took Jennifer to see doctors with complaints of symptoms including respiratory problems, ear infections, and diarrhea. Doctors struggled to find any evidence of an underlying cause, but the symptoms kept piling up. Eventually, doctors diagnosed Jennifer with a rare immune disorder, requiring an IV that had to be permanently implanted in her chest. This didn't help, though, and Kathy claimed Jennifer was having seizures, abdominal pain, and couldn't eat. She was only three at the time. She was given a strong anti-seizure drug that can actually cause seizures at high doses. At the age of five, Jennifer had a feeding tube implanted in her stomach. At the age of seven, she was diagnosed with a rare infection, polymicrobial sepsis. Kathy left her job to work for Jennifer's doctor as an office manager. There, she had access to Jennifer's doctors at any time and her medical files, which is incredibly suspicious. Kathy spent much of her time trying to raise money to pay for Jennifer's medical bills. Many charities donated to them and Jennifer received a lot of gifts and opportunities. By the time Jennifer was six, there were concerns about her care. The staff at the hospital where she often received treatment noted punctured and tampered IV lines, inconsistent statements about Jennifer's symptoms, and an endless insistence for more tests and more procedures. Finally, those concerns were taken seriously by a doctor who believed Kathy had Munchausen syndrome by proxy, and he reported it to Child Protective Services. Kathy sued the medical center when they attempted to conduct their own investigation, causing them to back down. When Jennifer was 10, there was an anonymous tip given about her to the child abuse hotline from a nurse at a different hospital. The anonymous source claimed to have witnessed Kathy tampering with the IV lines. The source also claimed Jennifer was being improperly medicated as her levels of prescribed drugs were not consistent with a prescribed dose. Jennifer even had drugs in her system that were not prescribed to her. There was evidence Jennifer's urine samples had also been tampered with or even switched with someone else's samples. And there was a troubling pattern when Jennifer would be in the hospital. Just as she would appear to be getting better and ready to be discharged, she would have a seizure when nurses were not present. Kathy used Jennifer as a way of getting attention she would make sure Jennifer presented as sick as possible when talking to the media and even looked to gain pleasure from her daughter's suffering. After this tip, 
both CPS and the Florida state prosecutors got involved and opened their own investigations. Those investigations turned over a lot of incriminating evidence in the form of witnesses to Kathy's tampering with Jennifer's treatments. In 1995, Kathy was arrested and charged with aggravated child abuse and Medicaid fraud. Jennifer was then put into the foster care system at the age of 10. In her short life, she'd managed to rack up 200 hospitalizations, 40 surgeries, and over 1,800 non-surgical treatments. Surgeries included gallbladder, appendix, and intestinal removal. Once removed from her mother's care, however, Jennifer's illnesses seemed to disappear. Because of how controversial Munchausen syndrome by proxy is, the judge in Kathy's case barred any testimony or evidence having to do with it from the trial. Kathy was convicted of medical abuse on Jennifer, and she was sentenced to five years in prison, followed by five years of probation. She was granted parole after only serving three years in 2005. When Jennifer turned 18, she requested that the prohibition of contact placed on Kathy to keep her from seeing her daughter be lifted. Jennifer then became close with her mother, and she now denies any abuse by her mother when she was a child. So what do you think? Was Jennifer a victim of child abuse? Did Kathy suffer from Munchausen syndrome by proxy? It's hard to deny all the witnesses to Kathy's crimes. The diagnosis of Munchausen syndrome by proxy continues to be controversial. And there's a really fine line between being overly invested in the health of your child to the point where you're actually interfering with their health and genuine mental illness. I think the difference is the motivation. Many researchers get hung up on this distinction. How can we truly know the motivation of a person? Things may be very different than they appear. Not everyone's outward reactions match what you think they should be for a particular emotion. So someone who looks quote-unquote happy may not be feeling happy. If Kathy enjoyed the attention she got from doctors and the media, and needed to fill that need for attention by subjecting Jennifer to unnecessary procedures, then that's more in line with Munchausen syndrome by proxy. If she believed the doctors were wrong and weren't treating her daughter appropriately, so she created more symptoms and ailments so that they would take a closer look, that's something a bit different. Both are undeniably bad. Both are abuse. Both are punishable by law. But treatment varies widely. For Munchausen syndrome by proxy, long-term counseling is necessary. Another case of suspected Munchausen syndrome by proxy is that of Blanca Montano. Blanca was believed to have purposefully infected her seven-month-old daughter in 2011. Both her son and her daughter were admitted to the hospital where they were found to be suffering from an E. coli infection. Blanca's son recovered normally, but Blanca continued to infect her daughter in the hospital where she was diagnosed with numerous other rare infections. The doctors were incredibly suspicious since the child was not getting better after a month in the intensive care unit of the hospital. Blanca even requested a bone marrow biopsy when there was no reason to perform one. 
The medical team decided to monitor Blanca's behavior to see if she was interfering with her daughter's care. Blanca was caught on camera contaminating her daughter's IV. After preventing Blanca from seeing her daughter, the child got better and Blanca was arrested. Both children were taken into protective custody after Blanca's arrest, and she was sentenced to 13 years in prison. One last case we'll look at is that of Lisa Hayden Johnson. Lisa's son had been born dangerously premature, garnering much attention and sympathy. He recovered from the complications of the premature birth, but soon after, his mother would claim her son suffered from a serious food allergy that prevented him from being able to eat. Lisa subjected her son to 325 unnecessary medical procedures. Over the years, she claimed he suffered not only from allergies, but also from diabetes, cerebral palsy, cystic fibrosis, and an intolerance to sunlight. He spent his life on feeding tubes and in a wheelchair. The feeding tube was placed when he was found to be severely underweight. Lisa forced him to go to school in his wheelchair even though he was perfectly capable of walking. The family received many donations for the quote-unquote most ill child in Britain. After six years of treatment without apparent symptoms, doctors insisted further testing be done to determine the root cause of his illness. After the investigation, doctors discovered Lisa had been putting glucose in her son's urine samples in an effort to make it look like he had diabetes. Lisa was arrested in 2007 and charged with child cruelty. She was sentenced to 39 months in prison. Her son, after being removed from Lisa's care, was given a new identity and has not suffered any further illness. I think she enjoyed the attention she gained from having a sick child and tangentially enjoyed the profitability that came along with it. Ultimately, the motivation appears in this case to be sympathy and attention. For me, when talking about Munchausen syndrome by proxy, the question that keeps occurring is, was there intent? Do these mothers intend to cause irreparable harm? Is there intent to kill? Do they fully understand the extent of the harm they're doing? Are their children just pawns in their quest for attention? Many suffer from fictitious disorder to begin with, so maybe they realize their kids are fond over if they're ill, so they transfer that sickness to their children. Sometimes it starts with the child actually being sick, and the parent realizes how much attention they get, and they want to prolong that. So they find ways to get that attention by either faking an illness or actually causing it. There's no definitively known cause for this disorder, but some have theorized there are some biological and psychological factors that can influence its existence. Some believe there's a link between a history of abuse or neglect as a child or early loss of a parent and the development of the syndrome. There's also some evidence for triggers of episodes of Munchausen syndrome by proxy, such as a major life stress event, like marital issues or divorce. Ultimately, we can't know for sure what exactly gives rise to this disorder. We can only be vigilant in recognizing the signs and symptoms to reduce the harm done on these children.
Thank you for listening to episode 17. I'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Hit that subscribe button so you can have access to the newest episodes right when they're released. You can listen to the Forensic Files on the website at the-forensic-files.captivate.fm, which is linked in the episode notes. You can also listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere else you can listen to podcasts. You can find me on Instagram at the Forensic Files Pod. Please reach out if you have any questions, corrections, suggestions, or requests. The email for this podcast is theforensicfilespod at gmail.com. Please leave me a review, especially on Apple Podcasts, so more amazing people like you can find us. All episode content was researched, written, and produced by me, Dr. N. All music you hear on the episode was written and produced by me and classical composer Jeffrey Young. Thank you.